please turn in your Bibles to the Gospel of Luke, and that to Luke chapter 4. Luke chapter 4. Luke chapter 4, and that to verse 38. And he arose and left the synagogue and entered Simon's house. Now Simon's mother-in-law was ill with a high fever. And they appealed to him on her behalf. And he stood over her and rebuked the fever. And it left her. And immediately she rose and began to serve them. Now when the sun was setting, all those who had any who were sick with various diseases brought them to him. And he laid his hands on every one of them and healed them. And demons also came out of many, crying, You are the Son of God. But he rebuked them, would not allow them to speak because they knew that he was the Christ. And when it was day, he departed and went into a desolate place. And the people sought him and came to him and would have kept him from leaving them. But he said to them, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns as well, for I was sent for this purpose. And he was preaching in the synagogues of Judea. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, as we come now to hear the exposition of your word, we ask that you would give us holy bread, the spiritual food without which we cannot live and grow. Give us in your word the bread who came down from heaven. Show us Christ, we pray. May we fix our gaze upon him now and do in us and do for us, Holy Spirit, that transformative work, making us more fit in the master's kingdom. We ask this in the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. If you were to enter the ruins of the ancient city of Capernaum, you'll find an impressive white limestone synagogue there, which dates back to the 4th and 5th century AD. It is regarded as one of the largest and grand synagogues ever discovered in Israel from antiquity. But underneath the white synagogue, are the remains of an even older synagogue made not out of white limestone, but from the black basalt stones found around the Sea of Galilee. It too was a synagogue, and dating back to the first century was in all probability the very synagogue in which Jesus worshipped. For the city of Capernaum, though, those black stones were indicative of the dark gloom in which its people resided in. It was a town that was in desperate need of hope and salvation. But God had made to them a promise. You see, the city, the city of Capernaum, had an ancient prophecy from Isaiah chapter 9, a passage of Scripture in which we are all very familiar. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor. Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. We know who that promise is referring to. But this is how that very promise of the Messiah begins in Isaiah chapter 9. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, He has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness 
have seen a great light. And those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shined. What was the Lord through His prophet saying? There is hope for you, you who live in the land of Zebulun and Naphtali. Hope for you who live by the way of the sea. Though you dwell in darkness, a light will shine. And you see, situated right in between those two tribes of Israel on the shores of the Sea of Galilee was the city of Capernaum. Listen to Matthew chapter 4, verse 13. And leaving Nazareth, Jesus went and lived in Capernaum by the sea in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Which is to say, it is no accident that Jesus is in Capernaum. He is making good on His promise to bring light to those who live in the darkness. And when He made His way to Capernaum, what did Jesus do? What did He do? He drove out the epitome of darkness while in the synagogue. He called out a demon who, is, who had possessed a man. Well, less than a hundred feet from the limestone synagogue is an octagon-shaped church built around the same time in the 5th century A.D. But again, what's underneath it is of more interest. It's because there is a house underneath it. A house using the same black basalt building materials as the older synagogue. The house is rather simple, with coarse walls and a roof made of earth and straw. But this house is no ordinary house. Archaeologists found that this house had been renovated. In the house was a significantly large room and it was plastered from the floor to the ceiling, a feature found nowhere else in the entire village where there used to be cooking pots and bowls were now large storage jars and oil lamps. This private room, this private house was now being used for public use. This house was being used as a communal gathering. Well, these small details led excavators to believe that this was the house of Peter, whose home was used for his master's ministry. Here in Luke chapter 4, Jesus, he, he leaves the synagogue and he comes to the house of Peter just a few steps away. Verse 36, And he arose and left the synagogue and entered into Simon's house. Simon being Peter's former name. Mark, he describes in more detail this short transition. He says, Immediately he left the synagogue and entered the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. And so Jesus, he leaves the synagogue and he enters into the home, into the home of Peter. Now you'll notice there are really three scenes provided for us here to the end of Luke chapter 4. In the first, Jesus, he comes to heal Peter's mother-in-law. That's the first scene. Well, in the second scene, he heals, verse 40, many who are sick with various diseases. And in the third scene, we find Jesus departing to a desolate place Verse 42. And so we have three scenes for us here to the end of Luke chapter 4. Now as we move through this passage and as we move through each of these scenes, I would encourage you to ask yourself, what does the Lord want to show 
me? What does the Lord Jesus want to reveal to me concerning Himself? And how then should that affect my soul? What must I consider in my own heart and my own life? Well, this is the manner in which we ought to always listen to the Lord when He speaks to us through His Word. Well, when Jesus enters into the home of Peter, we're told that his mother-in-law was sick with a high fever. Notice, first of all, that Peter was a married man. He had a wife. And as a result, he had a mother-in-law. And the only other time that his wife is mentioned is when Paul, he, he gives a defense of his rights and privileges as a servant of the Lord. And on behalf of his fellow apostles, he says in 1 Corinthians 9, 5, do we not have the right to take along a believing wife, as do the other apostles, and the brothers of the Lord, and Cephas? It appears that Peter not only had a wife, but that she too was a believer, serving alongside of him. And if you're wondering why Peter had so many names, Peter simply means rock in Greek, and Cephas in Aramaic. But a family resided in the home in which Jesus entered. And he found the mother of Peter's wife bedridden. She was, she was sick with a high fever. And notice that Luke, being a physician, he's a doctor by trade, he tells us that this wasn't just any fever, but a high fever, a dangerous and life-threatening fever. And the family, verse 38, appealed to Jesus on her behalf. Peter and his wife, they were desperate. And that because they were fearful. They were fearful of what would what would happen to their mother? She was, as the NIV puts it, she was suffering with a high fever. She was in a great deal of pain, possibly going in and out of consciousness. And so they appealed to Jesus and they asked of Jesus to help her, to even heal her. But I want you to notice a small detail here about Jesus. That even before they appealed to Jesus, He was already there. He was already there. The Savior, you see, He knew. That even before a cry of a prayer could go out, He was there and He was close by. And you see, beloved, this is descriptive of Jesus. That just when the fever comes, He also comes. And that nearby, ready to help and to deliver. And this is how the Lord wants us to think about our own difficult trials. That along with the trial is Jesus there beside it. And that although this fever was strong and high, there is a Savior who is infinitely more potent. A Savior who is the real cure. Charles Spurgeon, the Baptist preacher, in commenting on this passage, he said this, quote, I would not invite the fever to my house. But if Jesus would come with it, I would not be alarmed at its approach. If we do see our Lord riding on the pale horse, we will welcome the horse for the sake of its rider. Come, Lord Jesus, come how Thou wilt, but suffer not the trial to come alone. You see, the reason we ought to consider it all joy when we meet trials of various kinds, Christian. It's because Jesus is right there with it. You see, Christian, never does He send them alone, but always comes with them to give a greater consolation than the tribulation. Well, why did Peter and his family 
need to even ask? Why did they even need to appeal then to Jesus to heal their mother-in-law? If Jesus was there, why did they seek Him to help? Well, you see, the answer is because it's the delight of Jesus when we depend upon Him, when we seek Him, when we come to Him crying for help. This is what pleases God. The, The Lord said, this is the one to whom I will look. He who is humble and contrite in spirit, Isaiah 66. Psalm 51, the sacrifices of God are of a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. You will not despise, O God. You see, when we come to Him broken and looking only to Him, this is what He gladly accepts. These are the sacrifices in which He readily receives. Well, Luke knows all too well of what happens when a patient treats or when a physician treats a patient. And he describes Jesus now as standing over her as if ready to administer the remedy. Look at verse 39. And he stood over her and rebuked the fever and it left her. Notice he uses no medicine, no antidote, but like the manner in which he cast out the demon, heals her by his word. And what's interesting here, is that Jesus rebukes the fever. Well, how do you rebuke a fever? It's one thing for Jesus to rebuke a demon, but we don't usually think of fevers as being capable of such a thing. You know, when our children come down with a fever, we usually we give something or we put a, a cold compress or a pack on their forehead. It's not our first option or our last to stand there and admonish it, right? But whatever was producing this fever, Jesus was able to cause it to flee. He had the ability to remove the very bacteria causing causing it to leave her body. And we find that the one who was there at the bedside of this older woman not only had the authority and power over the spiritual realm as he had cast out a demon, but over the physical realm over the inanimate, from the invisible to the visible, the spiritual to the physical, all must obey His command. And notice within the physical, from the greatest to the least, from the big to the small, where else in the Gospels do we find Jesus rebuking the inanimate? When He stood in the boat, when He stood in the boat in the middle of that raging sea, and He rebuked the winds and the waves. And in a moment, there was a complete calm. You see, he has authority over something as large as the sea and as small as a fever. And so Jesus truly holds the universe by the very word of his power. And so Jesus enters into the home of Peter and he he rebukes a fever. And what also needs to be pointed out here is this. That as Jesus exercises His authority and power by His Word, He does so not only in the synagogue, but He also does it in the home. Which is to say that He works both in the church and in the home. And beloved, is that how we see Jesus? Better said, do we recognize His authority and His power and the workings of His grace in the home as much as the church. 
For some of us, our theology differs and it varies depending on whether we're at church or in home. Well, how so? We think differently about Him. Depending on where we are, what day of the week, whatever circumstance we find ourselves in, we think differently about Him. You see, here in Capernaum, you see, Jesus was readily received in that home as He was in the synagogue. And when Jesus healed Peter's mother-in-law, her cure, notice, was sudden. It was complete. It wasn't a half healing, but it was a, a full healing. Though the fever had gone, she wasn't exhausted. She wasn't tired from the pain. There was nothing of that kind. She was thoroughly healed. Just in a single moment where there were flushed cheeks, burning hot skin, profuse sweating, violent shivering, chilly legs. I have a friend who says a lot of funny things. And whenever he has a fever, he calls it chilly legs. I've never heard that before. I, I don't know if you've ever heard it before, but if you want to know what he means, you can ask Pastor Dave after the sermon. <laughs> Always calling it chilly legs. It's like, what's that, bro? But notice here, at the command of his word, in that very moment, every symptom was vanquished, every ailment gone. And one of the things that I love about this story is this. That just as fast as the fever had left her, so she served in response those who were around her. Look at verse 39. And he stood over her and rebuked the fever and it left her. And immediately she rose and began to serve them. She might be one of the greatest unnamed believers in the New Testament. Great because of her service. And we find that Peter, he wasn't short of godly examples in his life. This woman was in all likelihood on her deathbed, but yet Jesus had served her in the most incredible way. And so she could only do one thing, serve His people. She could only do one thing, to do in like, my, like manner as her Lord. She could only do one thing, to be like Jesus. This service wasn't a begrudging service, nor was it a kind of service to gain her master's favor or even the favor of others. But this service, as how all Christian service should be, was out of a deep heart of gratefulness. She was so thankful. Very simply put, when the Lord, when the Lord has saved us in the most incredible way, through Jesus, who has given to us all His righteousness, washed us of all our sins, saved us from the torments of hell, brought us into eternal fellowship with the Father, how could we not look to our neighbor in love and serve them? How could we not? To give ourselves to those whom we have been joined together with, how could we not love and serve them? For this woman, she was thankful she was thankful that the Lord had done for her more than she could ever ask or want. And so she turns around and begins to serve, most likely by preparing for those in her house a meal. And what a memorable meal it must have been that evening as they sat around the dinner table eating with Jesus in Peter's newly renovated house. Well, after Jesus had healed Peter's mother-in-law and after they had shared a meal together. It appeared 
that Jesus' long day of ministry was coming to a close. It was a very busy Sabbath day. As he had cast out a demon in the synagogue, then he had healed Peter's mother-in-law in his house. But Luke provides for us a second scene, verse 40. Now when the sun was setting, all those who had any who were sick with various diseases brought them to him, and he laid his hands on every one of them and healed them. Ministry wasn't over. Just when the day was ending, word had already spread throughout Capernaum, and the people were coming in droves, knocking on Peter's door, asking for Jesus. Peter was busy answering the doorbell. Jesus, it's for you. Jesus, it's for you. Jesus, it's for you. And those coming had all sorts of different diseases, different sicknesses. There are also more demon-possessed residents of Capernaum coming for help. Look at verse 41. And demons uh, came, also came out of many, crying, You are the Son of God. But he rebuked them and would not allow them to speak because they knew that he was the Christ. Peter's house had turned into a clinic of sorts. And the reason why so many people were coming to him after the sun had set, notice the detail there, was because they wanted to avoid breaking the Sabbath. And so the Sabbath ended when the sun went down. When I was in Israel a few years ago, or years ago, the roads on the Sabbath empty. The shops were all closed. It was like a ghost town on the Sabbath. But right when the sun went down, the streets of the old city of Jerusalem was bursting with people. Everything was open. There was so much activity from shops to restaurants. It's as if the place had come alive. And the people of Capernaum, they did the same thing. They waited until the Sabbath was over to make their way to Jesus. And Jesus, though He had such a long day of ministry, notice that Jesus doesn't rest, but He continues to work His gracious power, healing all those who came to Him. And what we learn of Jesus here, are two things. The first is that Jesus, he, he never stops working. I'm reminded of what the writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews 7 about Jesus' priesthood. He says there, the former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he, Jesus, holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through Him since He always, always, you see, He never stops. He always lives to make intercession for them. Isn't that something? You see, He's always working. Christian, He's always working for you and He never rests making intercession for you. Praying for you to secure you, to keep you, to preserve you. Always standing in your place, on your behalf, interceding for you. And you see, we rarely think of Jesus in this way, as a Redeemer who is always and ever working for us. Notice secondly, that He healed those who came to Him this time in a very different manner than before. Because Luke here, he tells us that that he laid his hands on every one of them. And the question is, why did Jesus do that? He didn't have to. 
He could have just done as his two prior miracles by simply using his word. It's not that his word was insufficient. It absolutely was, as we have already witnessed. By his word, he cast out a demon. By his word, he rebuked the fever from Peter's mother-in-law. So why did he lay his hands on every single one of them? It's because what we have in Jesus is not only one who possesses power and authority, but one who is compassionate. Who is willing to draw near and to hold us. It was His divine tenderness displayed to those who were in desperate need. And He touches every single one of them we see His compassion for those who are suffering. Every single person that evening felt the touch of the Savior and Master's hand. You know, what we have seen in this chapter, in Luke chapter 4, thus far, is a king who has kingdom authority, unequaled in greatness and power, who rebukes demons by His Word, the inanimate, both great and small, But this King whom all should fear is most compassionate. That's who Jesus is. He meets His subjects personally with love and with tenderness. And you see, there is nothing that should cause us to turn away from Him then. And there is everything, every reason for us to turn to Him. Non-Christian, there is a reason as to why you should not refuse this Savior. He seeks, He desires, He is willing to show compassion upon you. And let me ask you why it is that you are turning away from Him and running away from this Savior. Why would you want to run away from this Savior? He is a wonderful and merciful Savior as we sung. He's a compassionate Savior who has given Himself in life and death for sinners, having paid the just judgment of sin. God raised Him from the dead, and He now lives calling sinners unto Himself to draw near to Him, to come to Him in trusting faith. Non-Christian, have you considered the state of your soul? Are you in need of a Savior this very afternoon? That Savior is Christ. He is willing to take hold of you and to lay His hands on you to save you. Receive Him and take hold of Him in faith if saving is what you need. Because you see, even the demons, they cried out that they knew that they knew the identity of Jesus. Back in Nazareth, what did the people say? They said this, You are the Son of Joseph. You're just a carpenter who works in his father's shop. But how did these demons respond to Jesus? You are the Son of God. You see, they knew the identity of Jesus. Yet they refused Him. And while salvation is not offered to them, you need to know that it's offered to you. And if you've been here for some time, I don't doubt that you are unaware as to the identity of Jesus. But it's not enough to know about Jesus. But about trusting Jesus. And I plead with you that you would do so. 
that you would be thus delivered as from the same fate as this demon. Well, we come to the third and last scene here in Luke. After a long evening of healing, healing after healing and miracle after miracle, notice that morning came. And while it was still dark in the early hours of the morning, as Mark describes for us in his Gospel, Luke, he says in verse 42, And when it was day, he departed and went to a desolate place. And the people sought him and came to him and would have kept him from leaving them. But he said to them, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns as well, for I was sent for this purpose. One of the first things that come to mind here is the question as to why Jesus didn't keep healing people's diseases. Why did he stop what looked to be a successful healing clinic? It was working. Why didn't he just open up shop the next day, say that we're open, and do the same thing all over again? They're in Peter's house. And you see, the answer is because Jesus' compassion went beyond just physical healing. There was a far greater healing that men and women more desperately need. And you see, these healings, these casting out of demons, these miracles were not the purpose for which Jesus came. He didn't come to be a miracle worker, to simply heal people and work miracles. Rather, they served a deeper and more urgent purpose. To serve as a sign. As a sign. As a signpost to point away from itself to something else. Which is why the word miracle in the New Testament often comes from the word sign. Signs and wonders and powers. Well, what is that something else? What did it point to? It pointed to the Word. To authenticate the message. To validate the person who speaks and proclaims the Word. If we go back in the Bible to see where the first miracles occurred, it'll take us back to the Exodus. God gave Moses the task to go to the most powerful monarch in all the world and to say to Pharaoh, God says, you are to let my people go. And God also told Moses to tell all the Israelites that they were going to be involved in the greatest act of deliverance in the history of the world. And Moses, he responded in Exodus chapter 4, Pharaoh, nor the Israelites, are going to believe me. No one is going to believe me that I'm speaking on your behalf, that I am speaking your word. No one's going to believe me. And if you know the story, what did God tell Moses to do? He said, throw your staff on the ground. And when he did, it turned into a snake. And it scared him. And Moses, he, he, he ran away. But then when he grabbed the snake, it, it turned back into his staff. God also told Moses to put his hand in his cloak and he pulled it out to find that it was leprous and he did it again and it returned back to normal. And God said, use these signs. Why? To authenticate his word. That Pharaoh and the people of Israel would know that God was speaking. Well, here in Luke, what was the word that Jesus needed to preach? Notice what he said to them. I must preach 
the gospel of the kingdom of God. What was the purpose of these miracles? To validate that he was speaking God's word, the gospel of the kingdom of God. And this is why the sign gifts were given to the apostles to validate the gospel word in which they were preaching. And you see, we learn here from Jesus' response that there is a greater need than any physical ailment or any physical need. And the answer is the gospel, beloved. Isn't that what we just heard from the children's sermon through our brother Rendale? That there is a greater need. And the answer is that we need Him. You know, there's a story in Luke 17 in which Jesus was met by ten lepers. And they asked Jesus to have mercy on them. And Jesus told them to show themselves to the priests. And as they went, they were cleansed. They were healed. But only one came back to Jesus. And he fell on his face at the feet of his Savior, thanking him. And Jesus, he asked, well, where are the other nine? And he knew. And he said, Jesus said to the leper who was at his feet, he said, go your way. Your faith has made you well. You see, only one leper was made well that day. The one who came to Jesus. And I ask for all of us, including myself, if we truly, if we truly understand that, that Jesus is truly our greatest need, to have Him truly, not just to get better physically or some physical need, but to have Him truly, that we live our lives under His tender love, His, His compassionate embrace in sweet communion with Him. This is, notice how Jesus lived with His Father. Look with me in the text. Rising early in the morning, Jesus departed and He went to a desolate place. Well, what did He, what did he go there to do? And Mark, he says that he went to a desolate place to pray. As those in the house of Peter, as they appealed to Jesus for help, notice Jesus himself was not exempt from the same appeal. For he went to his heavenly Father in prayer. And we find Jesus doing this regularly throughout the Gospels. Here was the holy and sinless Son of God, Holy and sinless in nature. But it was a nature kept holy and sinless in the regular use of the means of grace and not in the neglect of them. Beloved, if so, Jesus, how much more should we? If Jesus, in the midst of all of His labors, found time to retire from the world to bring everything to His Father in prayer, how much more should we? Yet we're so busy, aren't we? We're busier than Jesus. We have more work to do than Jesus. We have more important things to do than Jesus. Church, let us imitate our Master living our lives in humble dependency. And let us come to the throne of grace and ask of our Father to make us more like Jesus and that as we look to Jesus, 
And I close with this. As we look to Jesus, to know that in Jesus, beloved, we have a gentle and compassionate Savior. Let's pray together. Gracious God in heaven, what a Savior we have in Jesus. What a Savior you have by your grace given to us in Him who has taken our illnesses and healed our diseases. That we have in Jesus a compassionate Savior who has looked upon our helpless estate and has shed His own blood for our souls. We are humbled and we are brought low like the leper and we give you thanks. Lord, we confess though that we have sinned by not appreciating your grace and living not in humble gratitude, but in proud self-dependency, in absent-mindedness of the things in, in the things in which you require of us. We have neglected the means of grace. We have forgotten from the very depths from which we were saved. And we ask that you would forgive us. And we ask, Holy Spirit, change us. And with the word we heard by your Spirit's power, Renew our minds and cause us to look to Jesus in faith. In the name of our great God and Savior we pray. Amen.